Okay, uh, welcome to Proverbs. I believe we are up to class number 14. Uh, my name is Doug Taylor. Glad to have you with us tonight. Uh, we are beginning with Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 1. Again, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. And the verse reads, False weights are an abomination of God, but a perfect weight is his will. False weights are an abomination to God, but a perfect weight is his will. Okay? So, what kind of questions might we ask around that verse? What do we need to know? What's not clear? What do we need to define? False weights are an abomination of God, but a perfect weight is his will. What do you think? Our first step is to ask questions. Okay, Pamela, you've mentioned about cheating. Uh, and I'm assuming you're saying that might be what the false weights are referring to. Okay, any other questions? Okay, so here are a couple that I might add to that. First of all, maybe the broader question of what is a false weight? Uh, and that seems to clearly refer to a form of cheating, but we'll talk in just a second about what, uh, what that's about. Second, when it says that it's an abomination of God, what is an abomination? When, what, what's an abomination of God? I mean, what does that word actually mean? What's King Solomon trying to refer to? And Naomi, good question. What's, what's the false part uh, when we say false weights? And by contrast, then in the second half, what's a perfect weight? Uh, now, it seems obvious, but again, we should just clarify it to make sure. And then, at the very end, when it says a perfect weight is his will, well, what does it mean when the verse says his will? So, and Pamela, you've said, yeah, an abomination of God, something Hashem detests, okay. Uh, and... That's a good starting point, and we'll try to get a little more precise as we go along. So let's start with that question. What's an abomination of God? I mean, in today's language, um, you know, an abomination is something you would say it's greatly disliked or abhorred or something vile or shameful or detestable, something that we have an intense aversion to. Uh, and so it would seem that an abomination of Hashem would be something that Hashem has a great aversion to, something that Hashem would find abhorrent or disgusting. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz has, has pointed out that when you have one of God's traits, when you're referring to a trait of God, that it's referring to something that happens in the physical world. We talk about God's vengeance, God's mercy, uh, and so forth. And whatever quality that we're talking about, it's referring to something in the physical world. But the term disgusting or abominable is a quality. And so the question is, how does that fit? How do we interpret that in uh, the physical world? Because there's no action in the word abomination. When we talk about God's vengeance or something like that, uh, that might be different. But 
an abomination isn't something that is is seen as an action. Uh, so, um, I mean, things like vengeance or God's hand you can see as an act, and it becomes easier for us to interpret it in terms of the physical world. But abomination is a certain feeling, um, and so uh, that's the, the difficulty of the interpretation here because it's hard to put in terms of an act. Um, now, because we see that the, there's no action in that word abomination, there, it's, it's that the consequences are more quiet. It's something you can't see. The results show up in a hidden manner. So let's hold that thought and turn to the question of what's a false weight. Now, this has to do with uh, the uh, with business in the marketplace. And Pamela, does it you ask? Does it relate to the purpose of Israel? Uh, let's hold that question and let's see if we if we get a sense as we go through here uh, of of what this is relating to. So. In the business, at the time this was written, when you would buy produce or other items, they're often sold by weight. And there were, you know, at certain times in history, uh, scales that were a balance. So you had basically a, a support in between and then two little pans uh, held up on, on uh, a rod across and they would, if they were empty, they would stand in perfect balance. So if you put, say, a pound of green beans on one side, then what you would do is you would, uh, or, or rather, you'd put a pound weight on one side, and then you'd start filling up the other side with whatever you wanted to buy, say it was green beans. And once the two sides of the scale leveled out, then you knew you had exactly one pound of green beans. If you ever have seen the logo of in the United States, the profession of law, uh, or the court system, I forget who has it, but it is a picture of a, a woman who is holding up a scale like that, and she is blindfolded. Uh, and the idea, uh, as I understand it, is that the justice is supposed to not take into account um, you know, anything extraneous that would otherwise uh, keep it from a pure and impartial and fair uh, determination of justice. So it's that weighing of those uh, scales. So uh, a, a storekeeper would have a set of weights and then depending on how much you wanted he'd put the weight on one side and put the produce on the other and figure out exactly how much uh, you would have. Now, if the storekeeper had slightly reduced the actual weight of, say, the one pound weight, you know, he scraped off a little, then you'd actually get a little less than one pound of green beans or potatoes or whatever you were buying. And of course that would be deceitful because you thought you were getting a full pound and you're paying for a full pound, but you were in fact getting less than a full pound. Now something like that, at least in those days, was uh, somewhat hard to catch. Uh, it, it almost seems like uh, the person who did this, uh, this kind of sneaky way of doing things, could get away with this over a long period of time because the change is so minute. You know, some crimes are very obvious. Uh, 
uh, and the consequences will likely be known pretty quick. But this one is is very difficult. Um, and Naomi, I, uh, I see your point that in India vendors uh, still use those scales for everything, and it sounds like you run into the situation of people using false weights. It's very hard to detect. I mean, now in the U.S. at least, scales used in grocery stores are uh, you know, certified and inspected, and uh, so that kind of thing I think is probably more rare. But in those days, it was very, very hard, uh, much harder to detect. And so something like that could go on for a long period of time without somebody figuring it out. Now, God created the laws of nature such that there is a high probability of a wicked person failing. So, where's the probability of this type of wicked person failing? Well, the purpose of the book of Proverbs, or one of the purposes, is to show you the consequences of all your actions. And we've talked about that whole concept of consequences, about it teaching us consequences. So, another question we could add to our list here is that the consequences of the action are not given in the verse. The verse says false weights are an abomination of God. It doesn't say what the consequences are. It just says that it's abomination. So let me pause and ask you a question. If you had the opportunity to steal uh, some very large sum of money, uh, I don't know, million dollars, five million dollars, ten million dollars, uh, pounds and pounds of gold, whatever it might be, uh, just some very large amount, and it is a certainty that you will not get caught. In other words, the, the scheme you've cooked up is perfect. There is no way you will get caught. Would you do it? And if the answer is no, and I see that it's not, okay, good, the question is, why wouldn't you do it? And one possible answer, I'll let you go ahead and respond first. Okay? Pamela, Hashem sees, okay. And Naomi, you said it's not our money. Okay, very good. So, there is the point about we've been told as part of, the, of, of God's laws not to steal. But let's take Hashem out of the picture for just a minute. And let's just look at within the laws of nature uh, and, and the systems that God has created. What would be a, what would be a reason, or might be reasons, not to steal someone's money or someone's possessions if you knew you could get away with it? for another few seconds here. Looks like Naomi's writing something. Why wouldn't you steal if you knew you could get away with it?
Okay, Namu, you mentioned the owner will be cheated, keeping in mind that it will hurt him. Okay, and conscience. Okay, and Pamela, you said it belongs to someone else. Okay, so let me ask you this. Let's think about just you for a minute. As the, what would be the consequence to you of being successful in stealing someone else's money? What would be the consequence to you? Would it have any effect on you over time? Okay, Pamela, no sleep. That sounds like guilt. Uh, the guilt would keep you awake at night. Okay. Ah, okay, and Naomi, good. Change of lifestyle and becoming more arrogant. Very good. Rabbi Moskowitz wants to point out that every act that we do affects our soul. And one type of act is in line with truth and reality, and another type of act is operating in accordance with our feelings. And that is an irrational approach to life. And when you make decisions that way, it strengthens that part of your life. And so if you do that enough, it will ultimately show up enough to destroy you. So let's take the thief. Thief uh, goes to steal uh, a kid, goes to steal a pack of gum. You know, not something big. But he manages to get away with it. So then what does he think to himself? I shouldn't have gotten that gum? No, he thinks, wow, that was easy. And look, there were no consequences. So I could go steal a candy bar. And he goes and steals a candy bar, and he's successful at that. And pretty soon, he's up to stealing, you know, lots of money. And what he's doing is he is destroying his own ability to think clearly and rationally because he thinks he can change reality to make it better for him at someone else's expense and that there will be no consequences. And what happens is, from just a strictly psychological standpoint, you start to develop uh, the, oh, I guess you'd call it megalomania, where you think, as Naomi pointed out, that you become more and more arrogant because you think that you can get away with doing this. And the targets get bigger and bigger, and you get more and more sure of yourself because you don't get caught, uh, and so you start to see reality less clearly. Uh, and it, it eventually destroys your ability to see reality clearly, and then you start making big mistakes because you're so cocky about it that you make the kinds of mistakes that can destroy you. And we see this happen in, uh, in history a lot. So if you do that kind of act long enough, it's ultimately going to uh, strengthen that irrational part of your life in a way that's going to result in very big and potentially fatal consequences. So it's possible to do an act like this one described in the verse where a person shaves off a little bit of the weight and get away with it at least for a while and perhaps for a long while. But every time you do it, you're training your soul to act in an incorrect way. As you look at life in an incorrect way, 
your soul reaches a level where you start making decisions that are more incorrect than before and basically it's a development over time and that shows up eventually in a way that is going to destroy you and that's an abomination. Rabbi Moskowitz stated on another verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 22, that an abomination of Hashem means something deep. You don't notice the consequences clearly, but it results in something very, very bad. By contrast, the desire of Hashem would refer to the opposite, something very beneficial. So Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that the basic cure for all of our wrong views of life is truth. I mean, that's the basic foundation of everything we're talking about. It is God's will that a person be guided by truth. When a person is guided by falsehood, that's an abomination because it's the destruction of the person. Without truth, you really don't have anything. And with truth, you can deal with just about anything that comes along. The truth is the basic foundation of everything we do and we have to have that to be successful uh, in the world and in the world of Torah. So the basic foundation of everything is honesty in your view of life. If you have an emotion that takes over, that's where you will tend to fail because then you're being dishonest with yourself. You can't see what's really happening and so we'll make excuses or rationalize our behavior uh, about something that isn't good for us. By contrast, if we're honest with ourselves, then we can see our faults, and we can see where our emotions are interfering with our view of reality, and we can take steps to undo those emotions. So, then... How does the idea of an abomination fit into the idea of, of the consequences that we just talked about? Well, every time that we give, again, a quality about God, we're talking about how God affects the physical world. We cannot know any qualities about God. We can only know really two things about God. Number one, we can know what He is not. And two, we can know how He relates to the world. Okay, one of the Maimonides' 13 principles of faith is that you can't know anything about God himself, which is, is an interesting idea. It takes a, a little bit of thinking to get used to, but we really can't. We can't know anything about God himself. All we can know is about how God relates to the world, because that we can see and observe, and we've been given in the Torah. Um, and we can see the results of how he relates to the world. So whenever we see a term about God, we have to see how it fits in the physical world. And that's why most terms about God are action words. But abomination isn't an action. Now, God created in the laws of nature that this development of our soul is a long, slow process. You could call it a little uh, a drip, drip, drip process. So if you do an act where the consequences don't show up immediately, then we can't think that we've escaped the consequences because, in fact, that act is affecting us. Even though we got away with it, that act is affecting the way we view life. And after a certain point, we'll view life in a more irrational way, uh, a higher way of looking at life incorrectly, if you will, 
So our decisions will be further away from reality and then we will get consequences. And ultimately the destruction is to our soul. So the opposite of that is the perfect weight. And by using that, we're reinforcing the correct way to act. And that too has an effect on our soul so that we learn to operate rationally and in line with truth and then we get all the benefits that the world has to offer uh, and are able to avoid negative consequences. Okay? Any questions up till this point? Okay, let me pause Pamela because it looks like you're writing something. Okay, so let me take then a side question that came up in um, a, uh, a tape that I was listening to of um, Rabbi Moskowitz. And it was a question that someone raised. Um, and uh, yes, Pamela, you're, you're right. Uh, it's actually robbing the perpetrator. That is true. Uh, the person who's robbing thinks they're getting away with something. And actually, the worst thing that can happen for them is to be successful. Because there is a damage going on, and they don't see it. And it's the damage to their soul, and the way they view the world, and the way they view reality. So the side question that came up was, does God want me to keep the commandments? And Rabbi Moskowitz had a very interesting answer to that question. He said, we can't answer that question because we don't know God. All we can see is how keeping the commandments benefits us, how it helps us to be in line with God. I can't know who or what God is, but every term about God in the Torah gives me information about how things work in the physical world. So, uh, to say that it's God's will to do a certain thing, that would mean that it would benefit him and benefit. That would mean that it would, would benefit the person uh, and benefit their soul and bring them closer to God. So in, to sum up the verse, we could say that a person's personality is affected by his actions in one of two ways. Either it's affected by seeing truth and reality or it's affected by living the irrational life. Now, if you live the rational life, you have a higher level of rationality, and if you make irrational decisions, then you'll make uh, decisions in an irrational manner. So, whatever direction you go is going to build and lead you more and more in that direction. So, the subject of the verse is that the soul or the personality of the human is affected by his actions. And again, goes in one of two directions. Interestingly, as a footnote, it's, it's important to note that um, the verse does not say using false weights is an abomination to Hashem. It says false weights are an abomination to Hashem. And if you look in the 613 commandments, it is forbidden for the Jewish people to even own false weights, 
even if they aren't used for measurement. And the commentator Rabbi Obadiah ben Jacob Sephorno uh, said, God abhors not only the actual practice of dishonesty, uh, dishonesty, but also the instruments that enable one to commit it. So it's not just using the false weights. Uh, in the case of the commandments, it's even owning them. Uh, that's an issue. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, good. And Terry and Lori, welcome. Uh, great to have you here. We are up to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. Chapter 11, verse 2. And the verse reads, When an arrogant person comes, disgrace comes. But to the modest person comes wisdom. When an arrogant person comes, disgrace comes. But to the modest person comes wisdom. So what would you say the questions would be that we might ask? When an arrogant person comes, disgrace comes. But to the modest person comes wisdom. What kinds of questions would we ask? What is modest? Very good, Naomi. We definitely need to know what does it mean to be modest? Okay, anything else? Okay, so let me add a couple to Naomi's question. Um, hang on, uh, Naomi, did you want to say something? If you do, or if anybody on the call does, please just click the microphone button in the lower left corner, and that will let me know you want the microphone. Okay, okay. So, the verse starts out, when an arrogant person comes. So I'd want to ask, well, what's an arrogant person? What does that mean to be arrogant? And then it says disgrace comes. What's disgrace uh, in this context? And why does disgrace come from the apparently the presence of uh, an arrogant person? And then at the end it says, but the, the modest person comes wisdom. So why does wisdom come as a result of modesty? Uh, and it, it, I mean, it seems like if disgrace comes when the arrogant comes, then it seems like the second half should say that when the modest person comes, then other people get wisdom. But it isn't saying that. It's saying that the modest person gets the wisdom. So why would that be? And, and what does one part have to do with the other? So, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, yeah, very good. Dis, uh, Naomi, is it disgrace to others or disgrace to the arrogant person? Who's getting the disgrace? Who's that aimed at? Another good question. So, here is what Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say about this verse. Very interesting approach. He said, the verse is saying that an arrogant person causes other people disgrace 
because an arrogant person puts people down, uh, shames them, uh, insults them, uh, tries to, to uh, uh, you know, I guess put them down is the, is the best per way I could say that. So you got a bunch of people together, an arrogant person shows up, starts putting other people down, so there is disgrace. The other people uh, are being disgraced in the eyes of everyone else because the arrogant person is demeaning them. Okay. Now, according to the Ibn Ezra, a modest person is one who is ashamed to do arrogant acts. So they're ashamed to do an act that would harm others or disgrace others. So, uh, the two sides of the verse are talking about the receiver of the contempt from the arrogant person. I mean, most people feel disgraced when an arrogant person puts them down. And yet, the verse is saying the modest person gains wisdom. Now, if that's true, the question is, well, doesn't the modest person feel the disgrace too? Um, you know, if, if, if he didn't, I mean, he, this would be somebody on a really high level. If, a, if somebody comes along and, and uh, demeans and shows contempt for a person and they don't feel it at all emotionally, that'd be on a really high level. But what the verse is saying is that the modest person doesn't show the disgrace. I mean, unless we're talking about someone on a very, very high level, uh, a modest person's going to feel the pain, but they're not going to show it. Okay. Let me pause. Terry and Laura, you said if it's all about you, if you're arrogant. Uh, yes, if you're the arrogant one, then, yep, this... Uh, the, the, the first part of the verse is definitely talking about you. So, the modest person is getting the, the disgrace too, but they're summing, somehow coming out of this with wisdom. And so let's talk about that for a minute. Normally we would say, if, if we're talking about a very, very wise person, okay, if a prophet came along and put him down, he wouldn't feel bad at all. Uh, I mean, at that level, he's not dealing with the emotions. Uh, I mean, if you're on the level of a prophet where you don't feel put down, uh, then there's no real knowledge for him to gain, so it's not going to affect him. But uh, I'm gonna. But the verse seems to be talking about a regular person who happens to be wise. And uh, yeah, Pamela, you're asking, is it about reactions? Yes, uh, to a degree it is, because the wise person still has the feelings and still feels the disgrace, but they won't show those feelings because they're modest. According to Rabbi Moskowitz, modest means to hide something. And in this case, we're, it's talking about uh, hiding feelings. Now, he's still going to feel the pain, but he's hiding it. So, we're, the verse isn't talking about a, a, you know, a prophet that's on a level where he doesn't feel anything. The book of Proverbs is basically talking to us beginners, regular people. 
Um, so the verse can't be referring to the profit level. So the modest person in this verse means that he's covering up his feelings. So he's attacked by the arrogant person and he really wants to answer back, but instead he'll cover his feelings and he won't. So then we could say, well, okay, you know, the person's got self-control. But in what way does he get wisdom out of that? And what's the wisdom that he's getting here? So Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested two ways you can gain wisdom in this situation. If a person just controls himself, he won't gain any wisdom. I mean, he'll just keep controlling himself, but he's not gaining anything. But an intelligent person is going to do one of two things. One is, he's going to try to work out the situation so that he won't find himself in that situation. So maybe he'll identify, oh, okay, this is an arrogant person, so I'm going to make sure I stay away from that person or avoid encounters with that person because I don't want to have to deal with them. Uh, it's too uncomfortable. So he'll make a plan or some kind of strategy about how to operate. And in doing that, he's training his mind about how to deal with people in those kinds of situations. Because uh, there are different types of ways that an arrogant person might attack you. And so the modest person uh, is going to be involved in working it out through practical training about, okay, how do I deal with an arrogant person that's coming to attack? Well, I can not be there. I can watch out for them. I can figure out ways to change the subject. You know, there are different strategies and plans that you could create in order to deal with an arrogant person. And by doing that, then the modest person is training his mind in strategy setting and, and appropriate situational planning. So he's gaining from this process. Even though it's uncomfortable for him, he's gaining. The second thing is that when a modest person is affected by this, okay, he's probably going to feel a conflict. The conflict is, I know I should keep my mouth shut, but what I'd really like to do is tell this guy off. I mean, I've got that emotion that wants to come back, you know, with the, the quick put-down and the quick rejoinder and, you know, verbally slam him against the wall. So the wise person is going to recognize, ah, I have a conflict going in here, going on here. I'm letting this bother me. I must have some emotional issue going on. And this is a an opportunity for me to recognize that emotion and deal with it. So he is getting wisdom about his own emotions, how to understand them and how to deal with them, and how to reach that level of the prophet by undoing the emotions that are causing him these conflicts. So, uh, so he's getting information essentially two ways one through the training of the mind and the other way through recognizing that he has an emotional conflict and that gives him information about how to deal with it. Okay, So we see from this that if a person receives an injustice there is a responsibility on the part of the receiver as to how they react to it. So a person could say well he started it which may be true. I mean, you could say that to the arrogant person. Arrogant person comes into a group meeting, puts somebody down, maybe puts me down, 
and I verbally slam back at him. And I could say, well, he started it. Yes, that might be true, but I have a responsibility in Torah as to how I react to a given situation. And we will be the most successful if we analyze that rationally and operate accordingly. Okay. Now, there are two ways to react to a situation where you're put down that don't have to do with wisdom. I mean, if you think about it, if you're not a person operating on the basis of wisdom and somebody shows up and starts putting you down, there are two ways to react. One is to be silent and one is to answer back. So the question would be, which one's the better way? Well, the first possibility is that there are two parts to the correct approach. The first part is not answering, and the second part is analyzing how to deal with the situation. Uh, if, you, if you can't think it through, you're at least doing half of the correct action by not answering. So we've got a two-part approach. So if the modest person um, doesn't answer back, he's going to feel a certain conflict, and that conflict causes you to investigate your emotions. Now, since the situation is painful, uh, it's the pain that is going to cause the wisdom, because that's going to cause me to investigate my emotions and how I respond to a situation. It is better to control oneself than it is to react, because when you react, it's like an act of vengeance. You're attacking back. And once you're doing that as a reaction, and since, as we discussed in the last verse, every act affects your soul, that will move your aggression to a higher level. And you could end up as an arrogant person who puts other people down because you've, you've stimulated and supported and reinforced that aggressive part of you. So if you control it, you won't be going in a bad direction, whereas otherwise you could have bad consequences. So even if you do nothing else, you're better off to control it. And then the best way is to take that a step further and work it out rationally as to both how to deal with those situations and how to deal with your own internal conflicts. Okay? Any questions about that verse? Does that make sense? Okay. I'll take no answer as a yes. So I think we have time for one more. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3. And the verse reads, The perfection of the righteous will guide them, and the distortion of the traitors will destroy them. The perfection of the righteous will guide them, and the distortion of the traitors will destroy them. Okay, one more time. The perfection of the righteous will guide them, and the distortion of the traitors will destroy them. What are the questions? What questions could we ask? The perfection of the righteous will guide them, and the distortion of the traitors will destroy them. Ah, okay, Naomi, good. What is perfection? What will that lead to? Okay, yeah, what does it mean, the perfection of the righteous? Does that mean we have to be perfect in everything, or could it mean something else? Okay, 
And in which way should a person be perfect? Very good. Okay. And Terry and Laura, you've mentioned truth. Okay. That's a possibility. We'll talk about that. I'd like to include in this what's a traitor? It's kind of an odd term, you know. Usually these verses talk in contrast about the righteous and the wicked. Okay. But it says the perfection of the righteous will guide them and the distortion of the traitors will destroy them. So, traitor to what? Okay. And Pamela, your version says the innocence of the just. Okay. Yeah, there are different translations, uh, and sometimes people take the word slightly differently, and there are also different interpretations. Uh, if you look at a number of the, uh, several of the different commentators, um, they, they uh, I think, not infrequently take uh, different approaches to the verses. So, I'm going to uh, uh, take Rabbi Moskowitz's approach on this one. Uh, he's been my primary teacher in this area, uh, and, uh, and there are likely other approaches. So I'm gonna, I want to ask a couple of questions. What's a traitor and then what's a distortion? Because it says the distortion of the traitors and how does that destroy a traitor? Uh, and then Naomi asked the question, what's the perfection of the righteous? And then we also want to know how's it going to guide them? So let me start out with the second half. What's a traitor? Let's just start with that question. Can you define traitor? in a general way. What is a traitor? Okay, Pamela Good, a betrayer. Okay? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, to expand on that a bit, a traitor is someone who belongs to a group and then turns around and tries to harm the very group that he or she belongs to. Okay? Good definition of a traitor. Okay, and Naomi, you've mentioned one who forgets the correct way. Uh, yeah, but I don't know that that gets quite to the sense of traitor, in the sense of betraying a group that they belong to. Usually we use that term in the sense of uh, about a country, where a person is a traitor to their own country, they spy for another country or something like that. Uh, so it has that sense usually of betraying a group that they belong to. Now, we've got to ask the question then, if King Solomon is talking about traitor in the book of Proverbs, we'd want to know, well, what group is he talking about that the person is trying to harm? And Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that he's talking about a traitor to the very idea of truth. He constantly makes decisions based according to his own feelings and emotions and not according to a view of truth or reality. So in our verse, the traitor has an emotional makeup such that in order to keep his emotions safe, he has to constantly distort reality. An illustration of that would be uh, Haman in the book of Esther. So. He gave advice to the king that women should always be subservient and that they shouldn't be able to stand up to their husbands. So from that we can see that he was always af afraid that a person might become independent in their own right. 
he needed subservience to protect his very weak and fragile ego. And we see that same thing when Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. So Haman looked into Mordecai and learned about his philosophy, and he was very concerned about that philosophy, because here's a whole group of people who potentially won't bow down to him. So he had to hide the reality that he had any weakness. Now when Mordecai stood up to him and wouldn't bow, well, that was reality breaking through Haman's emotions. So he had to spend his life trying to distort that reality. So that's what the verse means by a traitor to, a, to reality. Suppose that a person has a bad self-image. Uh, they don't want to face the fact that they have that bad self-image. Uh, or suppose a person has a part of his personality that he's ashamed of and he wants to hide it from himself. So he keeps operating in a way to cover up that weakness in his personality or that part of his personality that he does not want to have to face. So by traitor to reality, the verse is referring to a person who uh, his whole life is trying to distort reality. He can't accept it. And so that means that he's a traitor to it. Now, the perfection of the righteous means that his emotions are totally in line with his thoughts. And when a first person first starts to think correctly with wisdom, and he starts seeing the truth, his emotions aren't in line with it. Uh, they are not. They, there's a conflict there. Now, a person can make decisions in accordance with his mind in reality, even though his emotions don't accept it. And that's what we would call a righteous person or a tzaddik, on a lower level. Uh, I mean, they'll operate in accordance with their mind, but their emotions still want to do something else, so there's still a conflict there, but they will operate uh, and make decisions in accordance with their mind. The highest level, if you keep studying and working at it, is when you get to a point where your emotions come in line with those ideas. And that is the perfection that the, of the righteous that the verse is talking about. The perfection means that there's no conflict between my emotions and my thoughts. For beginners, there is a conflict. Uh, even though the beginner sees the truth and lives the truth, his emotions still want to go back the other way. Okay, so that gets us to a definition of what the perfection of the righteous is and what a traitor is and what the distortion is. But now we need to see how does the perfection guide the righteous and how does the distortion destroy the wicked. So suppose a righteous person lives according to logic and rationality. So he won't get negative consequences in his life. But the verse seems to be saying more. It seems to be saying that the whole personality of the perfected person will guide him. Not just that he makes right decisions. And for the wicked, yes, he'll get consequences, but his whole personality will destroy him. Okay, so it's not just what we've talked about before where, well, a righteous person will make smart decisions and a wicked person will essentially make stupid decisions and they'll both get the consequences. The verse seems to be saying it's like their whole personality is going to uh, uh, guide them uh, or in the case of the, the wicked person, uh, the traitor going to destroy them. So we need to show 
how that works. So, in the book of Proverbs, up until now, we've seen that if you're irrational, you get certain consequences, and if you're rational, then you won't get those consequences. But now we're talking about the perfection of the righteous, which means that somehow his total being helps him. Uh, so, how does it help him when his emotions are in line with his rational thinking? Similarly, uh, the decisions of the wicked are, are, uh, are going to destroy them, not the distortion. The distortion is only the cause of his decision. But in this verse, King Solomon is saying that the distortion itself will destroy him, not the decision he makes as a result of the distortion. So, to get at this, let's look at two people who live in reality, in line with it. For one, the first person, his emotions are in line with reality. And for the other, his emotions are in conflict with reality. But they both live in line with reality. Okay? One has his emotions lined up with him, one has his emotions in conflict. But they both live in line with reality. The verse seems to be saying that somehow, for the person whose emotions are in line with reality, his emotions will guide him so he will never have any consequences, while the other person will. Yet, how can that work if they're both living logically? Why is it that you're better off if your emotions are in line with reality? For sure, the person whose emotions are in line with reality doesn't have the conflicts that the other person has. But the verse is saying that it will guide him, which means there will be no consequences because of this. So what's the difference between the two? And Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say like this. The emotions are very, very subtle. The person who is guided by wisdom will not make open mistakes. But for the person whose emotions are not in line with reality, those emotions will make him see the incorrect view. And here's an illustration. When Jacob was raising Joseph, Joseph had leadership qualities. So he should have been raised differently from the brothers, and that would have been a rational thing to do. But once it was a rational thing to do, there was also an emotional attachment to Joseph that Jacob had more than to the other brothers. So the quantity of what Jacob did for Joseph went too far and caused him to give him the coat of many colors which was symbolic. He sensed uh, from his father that love, and it brought out the sibling rivalry of the brothers. So, you see that if you still have the emotions, they can affect you. And if you're not in line with reality, they can push you in the, in the wrong direction. That can be very, very subtle, uh, but if the emotions are in line with reality, then they'll push you toward an objective view of reality. And we see in the story that both Jacob and Joseph uh, paid consequences for that. So there are two things about the traitor to truth. Sometimes a person lacks knowledge about how to operate in the physical world. And if he studied, he'd know how to make decisions, but if he's ignorant, he never learned 
uh, the truth and how to analyze the situation and how to make plans and strategies to be successful. In other words, he never learned how to deal with the physical world. Okay. Then the second thing is there's a powerful emotion to hide reality. So even if someone tried to teach him the truth, he wouldn't be able to accept it. It's one thing not to have knowledge, but it's another thing to have an emotion that prevents you from actually seeing it, even if someone points it out to you. So that's what it means that the distortion of the traitor will destroy him. In other words, it won't even allow him to find the truth. His personality is such that his emotions block him off from even being able to see it if somebody shows it to him. So, I mean, when you're lacking truth, you need to learn it. But the traitor is so against reality, he wants to distort reality, he's afraid of that reality breaking in because it will show him what he really is and he doesn't want to see that. So that emotion will destroy him because it won't allow him to see reality when the opportunity for reality tries to break in. So, in summary, that we can sum up that there are three types of people who can't find the truth. Number one is a person who never studied it, he never got the chance. So he's going to make decisions based on his emotions and he's going to make mistakes. The second type is another person who, even if he were given the truth, wouldn't be able to see it because of his emotions. And that's the, the traitor and the distortion uh, that's going to affect him. The third person is the person who found the truth, lived the life of truth, but every once in a while, because of a particular deep-seated emotion, he'll make a mistake uh, in the truth. Okay, so those are three levels of not totally living the truth. The highest level is where you have your emotions living in line with reality, so you always make correct decisions. Now the verse is only talking about two of these. One is where a person's emotions are forcing him to go against reality, and the other is where a person's emotions are guiding him into reality and force him to stay in line with that, and that is what guides his life. Okay, any questions about this verse? A lot of material there. Very, very rich. Okay. Uh, if there are no questions, we'll stop here.